welcome to another episode of our NCLEX review series. In this podcast, we continue to bring you valuable materials to help you prepare for your exam. Enjoy. Now, you do have some people who are always going to test positive the demand too because they received the BCG earlier in their lives. Okay, if they have told you that they have re- did indeed receive the BCG earlier in their lives, what do you do? Chest x-ray. Okay, don't take the chance. If they say they didn't, they don't know, then, you know, you might want to ask them, well, what country did you grow up in? Because there are some countries where everybody, blanket, got the BCG. Okay, I know in Haiti, pretty much people, everyone got the BCG. In the Philippines, at a certain period of time, everyone got the BCG as well. So you might want to ask them that, okay? The only reason I say this is because I got to tell you, there was a lovely girl who works down in, uh, uh, in Florida. She was from Haiti, and she went for her Mantu skin test, and she just couldn't remember. She didn't know if she got a BCG or not as a little child. Well, they said, we got to give you this thing, and if you react positively, then we'll do a chest x-ray. You know, they gave her that 0.1 cc right in her left forearm. Do you know her entire left forearm inflamed up? It just, it swelled out, just like Popeye the Sailor Man. It was huge. You know, this poor child. So that was uncalled for. All right, so we might need to ask a little further questions, okay? And if we know these things, when in doubt, you know, go with a chest x-ray. I mean, if she comes from a country where you know that BCGs were being given, she doesn't remember, go with the chest x-ray, really. Um, the other thing is a sputum. You want to obtain a sputum. When is the best time to obtain a sputum? First thing in the morning. Early morning sputum is the best. Now, a lot of times you'll hear this, sputum times three. Okay, that means three days, three consecutive days, not three sputums. In other words, don't go, hap, 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 you know. <laughs> don't do that. That does not work. <laughs> okay. Okay, patient with tuberculosis is a very sick puppy. That is a sick puppy. Yes, that is a sick puppy. Okay, not a happy camper. We need to implement lots of things for this one. We need to implement respiratory isolation, good hygiene. We want to give him this disposable sputum container, nothing worse than to have a tuberculosis, never mind tuberculosis. Any patient just go, patui on the, ooh. I saw that the other day in Charlotte. This kid just cleared his throat and spat on the floor. Oh my gosh, yes. You know, rabbit me. I'm walking with my husband, and my husband goes, Oh, damn, he shouldn't have done that. His eyes are rolling up to heaven because what did I do? I always have Kleenex in my pocket, Miss Anal Retentive. And I went up to him and said, You need to pick that up. <laughs> right now. <laughs> he did. Everybody in my neighborhood knows I'm the crazy lady, okay? So <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> but don't spit on the ground. Don't spit on the ground. So you, and you know, tuberculosis patients, give them a disposable sputum container. You want to teach them about coughing precautions. And what is that? Cover your mouth. You know, mommy taught you that. Cover your mouth. Uh, and give adequate nutrition as well. The other thing also is that, yes, cover your mouth, but what else do you do? Wash your hands. Wash your hands real well. Okay, he's looking a little bit better now because we've given him some medications for tuberculosis. He's not as sick as he was. He's pinking up, 
Yeah, he's looking a little bit better. We've got some medications. You know, isoniazid or INH is one. It's the ever popular. Rifampin, ethambutol, streptomycin are also, those are the four main drugs that we use. There are basically nine drugs, tuberculosis drugs, that we utilize. And now, you know, people are going to say, damn, I've got, re- got to memorize these nine drugs. Well, let's try and make it a little bit easier for you. And what we'll do is we'll put it into different, we'll lump them into little categories, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Isoniazid, or INH, okay? This is a drug, it's a very popular drug that's being given for um, tuberculosis. With INH, though, you watch and you see that with most tuberculosis drugs, anti-tuberculin drugs, you have hepatotoxicity as a big problem. Okay, you've also got um, neuropathy as a big problem and hypersensitivity. You want to watch for allergic reactions. They're very uh, allergenic. Okay, what you might see with isoniazid is you might see vitamin B6 prescribed because it has the neuropathy component. And remember, we learned in the vitamin section that B6 you can give to that you need B6 to for um, appropriate nerve development and that if you didn't have B6, then you can get neuropathy. Okay, so this is isoniazid. Rifampin is the other drug that you'll see. And with rifampin, it's very important for you to teach your patient that this drug may discolor their urine, their tears, their sweat, their saliva. It may discolor it and make it into an orangey color. I had a patient show up in the ER frantic. She was sure she was dying. She was sweating blood and crying blood, okay? And, I mean, everything, her, her urine was red, everything. She was just bleeding out of every orifice. Well, it turns out she was taking rifampin, but nobody told her. Okay, so this poor woman was just absolute frantic. Um, nausea can also occur and vomiting can also occur. Now, this can occur with any one of the, actually, with any of the... Um, the anti-tuberculin drugs, okay, and hepatitis, again, it's hepatotoxic. When a patient's taking rifampin, you want to caution that person, particularly if that patient is of childbearing years and is on a birth control pill, that it may reduce the levels of birth control pills, so, you know, you might have an oopsie baby here. So you might want to tell them to use another form of of protection like a condom. Um, It'll also reduce the levels of of, uh, Coumadin or Warfarin, Theophylin, Methadone, and yes, that ever popular, Viagra, yeah, it may reduce the levels of that too. Do you know that Viagra is the only drug that has caused more deaths and it's still on the market? Yeah, the men won't give it up. (laughs) And you all know how they die, right? Well, Viagra works because it's a vasodilant. It vasodilates, okay? And so when it vasodilates, all the blood rushes to a particular area. So here you've got these older men who've got cardiac problems taking Viagra. So they take the Viagra, the, the penis, you know, the vasodilates and everything like that. All the blood rushes from the heart, whoop, right down there, and they fall over. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> Okay. The third drug, this, I'm getting serious now. The third drug about tuberculosis is something called rifamate. And rifamate is a combination of isoniazid and rifampin. So if you know isoniazid, that it's got, you know, 
uh, hepatotoxic capabilities and you give B6 with it, and you know that rifampin causes orange, you know, secretions to all turn orange, then the same precautions that apply for those apply to this, so now you've learned three drugs from learning two. Okay, pyrazinamide causes hepatotoxicity and hyperuricemia and arthralgia also, okay. Um, and rifiter now is a combination of INH, rifampin, and pyrazinamide. So is life getting a little bit easier for you? Okay, the panic button, don't push it yet now. Okay, it's a combination. Okay, why do we do this? And NCLEX question is why do we do combination drugs? Well, I'm going to give you the answer. The answer is we give combination drugs, particularly with tuberculosis and with HIV. We do this cocktail things. The number one reason is to decrease the side effects. Okay, that, if we decrease the side effects, then we increase compliance with the medication. All right? The number two reason is that tuberculosis, as with HIV, have a tendency to mutate or have a tendency to become immune to one particular drug. So if you give three drugs, if they become immune to one, you've still got the other two that are attacking it. Okay, and that's what we do with HIV cocktails as well. That's the reason. Okay, so I just gave you the answer because that is an NCLEX question. All right. Athambutol. With the thambutol, you have problems with the vision, optic neuritis, decreased visual acuity, and you may lose your red-green color discrimination a little bit, but it does go away. So in other words, you may become temporarily colorblind as far as the red-green is concerned, but it does go away once you stop taking the thambutol. Streptomycin is an antibiotic, right? It's an aminoglycoside. It is in the same family as... Garamycin, vancomycin, yes, you know all those things, okay, gentamicin, and you know that with all those drugs you have ototoxicity, same thing here. So anytime, if you learn streptomycin, then you've also learned garamycin, vancomycin, uh-huh, isn't that nice? So, you watch for ototoxicity, nephrotoxicity, and, and hypokalemia. Rifabutin is used as an alternative to rifampin in HIV patients, and with rifabutin, you just want to watch for, you know, signs and symptoms of prodromal fever, headache, that sort of thing. Okay? All right. Last one is rifapentine. With rifapentine, which we very, very seldom use, very seldom use, the biggest thing with rifapentine is the pseudomembranous colitis that could occur with it. Okay, and that's the major reason why we don't use rifapentine because even though it doesn't have a whole lot, it doesn't turn your tears orange and that kind of stuff, you know, and you don't see the, neuro, uh, the neuropathy, the pseudomembranous colitis can occur, and that is just terrible. It's devastating to the patient. And they end up, start off first with diarrhea, and I'm talking diarrhea of 10 times a day. Okay, and that in itself is enough to make you not take the medicine. So... We try not to give rifapentine. The, the treatments really that we stick with are the INH, um, rifampin, and uh, the combination drugs. Okay? All righty. We are now going to discuss, you know, you know chronic obstructive, we're going to talk about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. You know that with COPD, there are actually four of them. There's asthma, bronchitis, emphysema, and bronchiectasis. 
I have never seen a question on bronchiectasis in NCLEX, so we're going to cover asthma, bronchitis, and emphysema. Essentially, what you've got to know is COPD is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So every single one of these people is going to have problem with their oxygenation, right? Because there is an obstruction there. Okay, with chronic bronchitis, the sputum is going to be gray. This is a nice gray, well, it's just gray here, but this is a nice gray glob of spit, sputum. It's thick, it's gray, it's tenacious. He has dyspnea on exertion, that's what DOE stands for. He has hemoptysis also. He's got hypoxia, he's got wheezing, he's got riles, and he's just not happy. Okay, with asthma, this is the blue bloater. Remember the blue bloater pink puffer? Well, asthma is the blue bloater. This person's in respiratory distress and has got tachypnea. He's got a cough as well and ronchi. He's got wheezing, inspiratory, expiratory wheezing. Okay, and he's going to have more inspiratory problem than expiratory problem. Okay, he's going to have wheezing and riles as well. Okay, what are some of your interventions for asthma and bronchitis? Well, you're going to give bronchodilators. Okay. One of the things that they ask you in NCLEX is, do you know how to teach a person how to use an MDI? An MDI is a multi-dose inhaler. Now, I, this is a new question because I just got it in the mail the other day. Yeah, I have my little spies. You know, when you take your questions and take your tests, you just email, let us know about them. We have our little spies out there. That's how you guys get such fresh questions from us. What, do you think we just, like, by osmosis and ESP got them? <laughs> we have to work very hard. Okay, anyway. The question is that this patient has, um, has asthma and is using an MDI, and how do you know whether the patient is using it correctly or not? Okay, so now what you've got to do is go along with me this is my MDI, okay? Side so drop it. This is my MDI. This part goes in my mouth, and this part is the plunger, okay? So what you have to do is tell, you have to know how to do this. So what you've got to do is say, okay, first you take the mouthpiece and put it in your mouth. Then you depress the plunger. At the same time you depress the plunger, you inhale. Is that correct? That's about correct, but you missed a whole portion. And the whole portion is that, first of all, you have to have the patient go, okay, twice. And on the third time, go, so you want that patient to empty out his lungs as much as possible before he does the final inhale, okay? That's the best way to do it. That's how to utilize the multi-dose inhaler. You'll also see steroids given for asthma and, from bron and bronchitis and also for emphysema. And why? What do steroids do? We give steroids for everything, don't we? Yeah, if you sneeze here, have a steroid. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Got indigestion here, steroid. Doesn't matter, have a steroid. Okay. Why do we give steroids? Because steroids have an anti-inflammatory component to them. That's the good side of steroids. The bad side of steroids is that they also can suppress your immune system and cause you all kinds of problems, okay? And the other th bad thing about steroids is it causes you to retain water, 
okay, and you can get that buffalo hump and the paper thin skin and the moon face and you lose your hair. Lose your hair here, grow a mustache, and I'm talking girls, you know. So it, it can be a problem. Um, we're going to give oxygen for asthma, for bronchitis, for emphysema, but remember how much oxygen maximum do we give? Maximum is three, but, but the recommendation from NCLEX is two. Okay, so in the real world in practice, maximum is three. Okay? You want to give fluids more than 3,000 cc's a day, and why is that? And you do this for asthmatics, for bronchitics, and for emphysemics. Why is that? Because you want to dilute out that thick, tenacious sputum. Remember, with asthma, you've got lots of sputum also, because that's, that's what constricts your bronchioles. Okay? IPPB, intermittent positive pressure breathing treatment, you will sometimes see that given for asthma. Okay, with emphysema, here's my pink puffer. He's pretty pink. You don't see cyanosis with him. Asthmatics are the blue bloaters, right? Emphysemics are the pink puffers. You have dyspnea with emphysema, you have extremely stinky sputum. Extremely. When they get to end stage emphysema, they're going to suffer extreme weight loss. Why? Because they have to choose, literally choose, between eating and breathing. They cannot do both. If they eat, they cannot breathe. And if they breathe, they just can't eat because they, they just can't. So we take these things for granted, but they will actually literally have to choose between eating and breathing. So severe weight loss. You will have that barrel chest, right? Now, NCLEX will not be so kind as to tell you barrel chest as a symptomology. What they call it is an increase in the anterior-posterior diameter. Yeah. So that's what NCLEX calls it, an increase in the anterior-posterior diameter. Okay? So you will see this barrel chest in emphysemics. And you will see wheezing. So they're very susceptible, emphysemics, to infections. So what do you want to tell emphysemics? Stay away from crowds. Anyway, you know what? They don't want to go anywhere. They're sitting home with their oxygen men, and they cannot even move. So you don't, I mean, you really, in real life, you don't have to tell them stay away from crowds. Okay? But NCLEX wants you to know that you have to tell them that. Excuse me, Mr. Jones, but I would prefer that you didn't take your little oxygen tank, and I know you can't breathe, but I would prefer you didn't go to the mall. They're not going to go to the mall. They're going to sit at home and work on breathing. And their houses are about 30 degrees. They keep it very cold, because when it's hot, they can't breathe. Okay? Very, very cold homes. CHF is a huge compl complication of emphysema. Now, remember we talked a little while ago about left-sided and right-sided heart failure? There is a heart failure known as core pulmonale. Okay, core pulmonale is when you have right-sided heart failure because of a pulmonary problem. So you've got emphysema or asthma or bronchitis. Okay, so you've got an obstruction in the lungs, and the right side of the heart has to, keep, has to pump the blood to the lungs, correct? And it keeps meeting with this obstruction, and it cannot pump the blood into the lungs. Eventually, the right side of the heart will fail. That's core pulmonale. It's right-sided heart failure secondary to a pulmonary problem. So emphysema, you're going to see CHF as a complication. 
So what is some of your interventions? Well, you're going to teach him pursed lip breathing. And essentially, you've got to be able to describe to yourself, okay, he's going to sit down, he's going to hyperextend his chin a little bit, he's going to inhale through his nose and exhale through his mouth. Because with emphysema, the problem is not getting the air in, it's getting the air out. Okay? So emphysemics usually have a carbon dioxide level of about 66. Yeah. We call emphysemics members of the 60-60 club. Because you can't tell their oxygenation from their carbon dioxide. Their oxygenation stays in the 60s. Carbon dioxide stays in the 60s. So they are the 60-60 club. Okay? So you've got to teach them pursed lip breathing. Again, it's not the problem getting in, it's the problem coming out. So they cannot expel their carbon dioxide. You will give them oxygen, two liters. You will hydrate them and chest PT. And you all know what chest PT is? It's legalized abuse of your patient. That's what chest PT is. Okay. Oxygen therapy is given to a COPD patients. It's also given to anyone essentially with hypoxemia. It's also given to anyone with adult respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. Okay? We're two basic symptoms. We've got low flow, okay? And we've also got high flow. And here's my little oxygen molecule sitting on a ladder, and he's pretty high. Okay? With your low flow systems, you've got three main types. And we're going to cover each one of them. And why do we do that? Because NCLEX has a tendency to love to ask you questions on these things. So we'll go ahead and do it. And I'm going to hit the high points, okay? Number one, the nasal cannula. The nasal cannula gives you between one to four liters per minute, okay? So it gives you an FiO2, an oxygen percentage, in other words, of between 24 to 40%. What your nursing interventions are with the low-flow nasal cannula is you've got to remember to remove the cannula and clean the nares. You've also got to do ear care, okay? The same patient, by the way, the same exact patient, okay, who had the fingernail that was removed, now, he was pretty much a veggie, all right? He was in a persistent vegetable, a vege vegetative state. He also had the nasal cannula. Um, and when I went to clean and took the nasal cannula off, the ear right here was split right down to there. Yeah, they're just, you know, very simple nursing care, folks. Very simple nursing care. We, go, we went into this profession to help people, so let's help them. Okay. You also want to do mouth care every two to three hours with the nasal cannula. Okay. The second low flow system is the standard mask. Okay. The standard mask just covers the nose and the mouth. The uh, patients breathe through the nose. Okay. And you get somewhere between 6 to 12 liters per minute. This translates to an FiO2 of between 40 to 65%. You've got to clean the mask every two to three hours because it really does get kind of gunky. Now, the third way... The third low flow system we're going to cover is the non-rebreather mask. With the non-rebreather mask, you actually have a reservoir bag that hangs down. Now, with the reservoir bag, you've got to remember that the patient breathes the air from the bag. So you fill the bag, you hook up the NRB, you hook up the non-rebreather uh, mask to the um, oxygen supply, you fill up the reservoir first, and then you put the mask on the patient. That's an NCLEX question. They, they say, do you put the mask on, then fill it? 
you know, no, you fill the reservoir bag first and then put the mask on the patient, okay? The non-rebreather mask delivers the highest possible concentration other than intubation or mechanical uh, ventilation. When you are monitoring a patient who is using a non-rebreather, that reservoir bag needs to deflate a little bit, so it needs to pulsate. So every time he inhales, it should deflate a little bit, and then you know when it, he exhales, it should inflate again. If it doesn't do that, then it means you need it's not filled properly. Okay, so you need to take the mask off the patient, refill that that reservoir, and put it back on him. If it stays inflated all the time, that means you've got too much going in, so you need to. De diminish the amount, the flow rate, until you have a slight deflation. The non-rebreather gives you 6 to 15 liters and an FiO2 between 60 to 90 percent. Now we're going to discuss the high flow system. The high flow system is a Venturi mask, number one is a Venturi mask. The Venturi mask is a wonderful thing because you actually, I call it the dial in oxygen. You actually dial the percentage of oxygen that you want and then put it on him. With the venti mask, which doctors really like to use because you can use it for asthmatics, for COPD patients, um, the oxygenation is anywhere from 24 to 50 percent. And if you remember, go back to the nasal cannula, that's between 24 and 40 percent, right? Okay, this one is between 24 and 50, so it's really close. With the venti mask, what you can do is if your patient is on a venti mask, and this is an NCLEX question, during meal times, you can take the venti mask off, put the nasal cannula on at two liters, okay, let him eat, and after the meal, replace that, take the cannula off and put the venti mask back on. That is an NCLEX question, and that, yes, you can do that with a venti mask. Safety precautions. While you know no smoking, keep your electrical equipment away from the oxygen, Synthetic fabrics, okay, those of you, how many of you wear polyester to work or rayon or, or um, pantyhose and stuff like that? Can't do it, nope, can't do it. Really cannot do it. If you're wearing pantyhose, eh -eh, go get cotton, okay? Because synthetic fabrics, especially in the winter, they're static electricity, cause a spark, start a fire, can't do that. Okay, you must use humidified oxygen, and you want to avoid the use of flammable materials um, like oils and greases or alcohol near the patient with the oxygen. So all you nurses here, you know how we have all these little squares of, of um, alcohol swabs in our pocket, and how if anything's dirty, we go, we take one, rip it, and then clean it? Yeah? Don't we do that? We do that with everything. We clean everything with it. Okay, we can't do it anymore, especially not around oxygen, okay, because that's an inflammable substance, so you certainly don't want to do it. Big thing with oxygen is you want to assess for signs and symptoms of oxygen toxicity, and this substernal pain, cough and hemorrhaging, are big signs of oxygen toxicity, so you really need to watch that very carefully. And this is really more for people who are on higher flow oxygen for extended periods of time. Okay? <clears throat> Let's talk about ABGs. With ABGs, you just got to follow the rules. If you follow the rules, you're going to be all right. Okay. Now, in Hawaii, where I'm from, there's a bus system. 
And the bus system is called DABUS, D-A-B-U-S. So we are now going to follow the rules. Okay, very easy. So, the rules number one. The pH range you all know is 7.35 to 7.45. The higher the number, the more alkalotic, the lower the number, the more acidic, right? The carbon dioxide range is 35 to 45. The higher the number, the more acidic. The lower the number, the more alkalotic. And if you know that it's carbon dioxide related, it's respiratory. The rule number three, bicarb, that range is 22 to 26. The higher the, the number, the more alkalotic, the lower the number, the more acidic. And if it's bicarb related, it's metabolic. Those are your three basic rules. Okay? You got to know what your normal ranges are. pH 7.35 to 7.45. The lower the number, the more acidic, the higher the number, the more alkalotic. Carbon dioxide range 35 to 45. The higher the number, the more acidic, the lower the number, the more alkalotic. Bicarb range 22 to 26. The higher the, the number, the more alkalotic. The lower the number, the more acidic. If it's carbon dioxide related, it's respiratory. If it's bicarb related, it's metabolic. Yes? Okay, let us move on. Here now are the final rules. Hold on. Don't panic, folks. Don't panic. you get it. Here are the final rules. You first of all, you have to identify the pH. Number two, you have to identify the carbon dioxide. Number three, you identify the bicarb. And number four, you play a game called mix and match. Okay? You've got some values. I'm going back. You can copy now. I'm going back. In your book, you've got some uh, ABG readings. Let's go ahead. I'll go ahead and give you some. All right, you ready? Got a piece of paper. Take it. I'm going to give you some values. We're going to interpret. Okay, your ABGs, your pH is 7.24. Okay, now according to the final rules, number one, you got to identify your pH, right? So is your pH acidic or alkalotic? It's acidic, so very good. Write down next to your value, write down acidic. Okay? Number two of the final rules is you want to identify your carbon dioxide. Well, your carbon dioxide in this case is 66. So is that acidic or alkalotic? It is acidic. So next to that, you write down acidic. Number three, you identify your bicarb. Well, your bicarb is 25. Is that acidic, alkalotic, normal, what? Normal. It's normal. So next to that, you're going to write down normal. Yes? Okay. Next step, mix and match. 
you've got three values here. You've got two acidic and one normal. Yes? The top one is you've identified the pH, so you know that the problem is that it is acidic. You know it's something acidosis. You don't know what's causing the acidosis, right? So you just went down and you identified the carbon dioxide and the bicarb. And you found out, my gosh, that the carbon dioxide is 66, so that's acidic. So therefore, it must be the carbon dioxide that is causing the acidosis. And remember this rules number one, if it's carbon dioxide related, it's respiratory, so this must be respiratory acidosis. Mix and match. You ready? Let's do another one. Okay. All right. pH is 7.48. Okay. Is that acidic, alkalotic, or normal? It's alkalotic. Write down next to it, alkalotic. Your carbon dioxide is 25. Is that acidic, alkalotic, or normal? It's alkalotic. Remember the rules number one. You cannot take the rules for carbon dioxide and apply it to the rules for bicarb, and you cannot take the rules for bicarb and apply it to the rules for carbon dioxide. Cannot do it. Each set of rules pertain only unto itself. Okay? So your carbon dioxide is alkalotic, correct? Okay, your bicarb is 23. No, sorry. Your bicarb is 33. It's alkalosis. So now if you look at your values, look first at your pH, you know that's alkalosis, right? But you don't know what's causing it, correct? So you went down and you identified the carbon dioxide and you identified the bicarb and you discovered that your bicarb was in the alkalosis range. So therefore, it's your bicarb that's causing the alkalosis and if it is bicarb, it must be metabolic. Mix and match. Is that easier? It's easier, I know. We're going to do one more. Ready? Okay, your pH is 7.50. Oh, wait a minute. I gave you some wrong values for the one before. I did. Well, if everything is alkalotic, then it's a combination of respiratory and metabolic alkalosis. That's all. Your answer is respiratory and metabolic alkalosis. If everything's alkalosis, then it's everything that's causing it. Got it? Okay. All right, here's your next one. I'm sorry, I got interrupted in the middle of that. Um, so the one before that we just did, your, your pH was 7.48, your carbon dioxide was 25, and your bicarb was 33, so all three were alkalosis or alkalotic. If that's the situation, then it's a combination of respiratory and metabolic alkalosis. It's called, this guy's going into total body failure real quick. Okay, because there's no compensatory mechanism at work. All right. pH is now the next problem. pH is 7.50. Is, is that acidosis, alkalosis, or normal? It's alkalosis, right? We've identified it's alkalosis. All right. Your uh, carbon dioxide is 50. 
It's what? Acidosis. Okay, so write acidosis next to it. Your bicarb is 40. It's alkalosis. Okay, now with ABG problems, we're always determining what's wrong with the pH. Your pH is alkalosis, right? Alkalotic. So you want to determine what's causing it to become alkalotic. It's not your carbon dioxide because that's acidic. It's your bicarb, isn't it? Yes? So the answer to this one is metabolic alkalosis with an attempt to compensate. It's uncompensated, exactly. It's an attempt to compensate. It's uncompensated. Remember, your body tries very hard to always compensate for a problem, okay? In other words, one good example is if you're hemorrhaging out, okay, and your cells are not getting enough oxygen, what does your body do? It increases your respiratory rate and increases your heart rate, doesn't it? Because it wants to get more oxygen to your cells. It doesn't know that you're losing blood. It just wants to get more oxygen to your cells, so it's compensating. It's the same thing here. Your body, under normal circumstances, tries very hard to compensate. As long as your body can compensate, you're not in too much trouble. It's when your body decides not to compensate that you're up the creek without a paddle, as it were. Okay, can we talk about lung cancer now, since we're talking about ABGs and breathing and lungs and all this other kind of stuff? Okay, lung cancer. With lung cancer, you need to understand this. We maybe do a little bit more than lung cancer. With lung cancer, what you've got to understand is this, all right? Number one is that you're going to discover lung cancer the majority of the times too late in the game, okay? When people, by the time people come for treatment for lung cancer, they usually come because of the pain or because they're spitting up blood. By that particular point in time, it's a little bit too late. Persistent cough, they don't really come. Okay, here's this guy who's smoking three packs per day, all right, for the last 45 years. And he's had a persistent cough now for about six months. You know what he says? Well, it's because I smoke, so I'm going to get a cough. He doesn't present for that. It's when he starts spitting up blood and coughing up blood and losing weight and getting weak. That's when he comes, Okay. But by that time, the cancer is pretty bad. There are two treatments for lung cancer. One is called a lobectomy, and one is called a pneumonectomy. With a lobectomy, what you'll find is that they'll remove one lobe. With a lobectomy, you will have chest tubes in place. With, it, with a lobectomy also, postoperatively, you are going to tell the patient to lay on the unoperative side. In other words, if they took out a right lobe, okay, and he's got chest tubes here, chest tubes, you want to lay him on the left side, not on the right, because you lay him on the left so that the right lung can ventilate. Okay, that's with a lobectomy if you remove one lobe. With a pneumonectomy, that's when you remove the entire lung, the entire right lung or the entire left lung, there are no chest tubes, number one. And number two, you will have him lay on the operative side. And the reason is, no chest tubes. Why? Because there's fluid 
that stays in the thoracic cavity, and you want that fluid to gel up, okay, to fill that thoracic cavity. So because it's fluid filling, you don't want to drain it, no chest tubes, you want to lay him on the, of the, on the side that you just took the lung out. Why? So that the other lung that's nice and still working and hopefully healthy can expand. If you lay him on the side of the lung, the only lung that's left, what happens is the fluid here will push on that lung and that will cause some dyspnea and some discomfort. Okay? So with the lobectomy, chest tubes, and you lay on the operative side. With a pneumonectomy, no chest tubes, and you lay on the unoperative side. Okay, so the good side, in other words. Anytime you have a chest tube, you need to tape all the connections properly, nice and tight. If you still have the misfortune of having a doctor that insists on using the three-bottle system, I, the three-bottle system was invented by a doctor out of the Medical College of Virginia. And even when we went to Pluravax and the rest of us were so excited about Pluravax and stuff like that, not our doctor. He would insist on using the three-bottle system. So we would have to be tucking them under the bed because we didn't want to trip and fall over it, you know, and that kind of thing. If you have bottles or even with the Pluravax system, you need to keep the drainage system below the level of the bed. So if you have to transport a patient, the last thing you want to do is put the bottles on the bed with the patient. Put them under the bed. Okay, put the Pluravax under the bed or hang it on the side. Now, NCLEX likes to ask you these questions about the Pluravax or about actually the drainage system. The water in the water seal chamber should fluctuate a little bit it can also have a little bit of an occasional bug bubble. If there's constant bubbling in the water seal chamber, that tells you there's a leak somewhere. Normal is that it fluctuates, okay, with, especially with inspiration, expiration, occasional bubble, not a problem. Constant bubbling, problem, there's a leak. If there's absolutely no water, no bubbling, no fluctuation in the water seal chamber, you've got an occlusion, you've got a blockage. So there should be a little fluctuation, a little bit of a bubble, okay? The water in the water seal chamber can bubble sometimes with expiration, perfectly normal. Intermittent, fine, okay? You've got, there are three chambers, you've got the water seal, you've got the drip chamber, You've got the water seal chamber and you've got the suction chamber, right? So the suction chamber has a water level in it. You must keep that water level at the level ordered by the doctor, all right? So if it, de if it evaporates, you just got to fill it with distilled water. The place that you want to see constant bubbling is in the suction chamber. You do not want to see co continuous suctioning anywhere else. I mean, continuous bubbling anywhere else. Where you want to see continuous bubbling is in the water chamber. And don't ever clamp a chest tube without an order. What I usually tell people is, you know, better not to clamp at all. What you've got to do also if a patient, with a patient with chest tubes is you need to measure the drainage every single shift. And again, here's your magic marker, you know, your little Sharpie, and you start drawing lines, right, and writing down the time and the, and the date. You've got to measure the drainage every shift. If there's more than 100 cc's an hour, you need to notify the doctor, except immediately post-operatively. Immediately post-op, if you drain 100 cc's an hour for a couple of hours, that's fine. It's normal. Okay, it's when it continuously continues to drain 100 cc's an hour, that's a problem. That's when you need to tell the doctor. 
If you are taking care of a patient with a chest tube, you need to keep emergency supplies at your bedside, so you've got to have things like a petrolatum gauze or a bottle of sterile water. Why the petrolatum gauze? If he accidentally pulls the tube out, then you take the petrolatum gauze and you slap it right onto the site. Okay, and then you take the other end of the, the you take the tube um, that he just pulled out and you put it into a bottle of sterile water to keep it sterile. Okay. What you want to tell a patient also is that, look, when it comes time for the doctor, ultimately the doctor will, will remove the chest tubes. When it comes time for the doctor to remove the chest tubes, what I want you to do is to take a deep breath and hold it. What you're doing is teaching him how to valsalva. Okay, because if he valsalvas, then he's exhaling, then his lungs are full, and boom, out comes the tube real nicely. While... While you're taking care of the patient, while the chest tubes are in and even while the chest tubes are out, you need to watch very carefully for something called tension pneumothorax. Okay, and some of the signs and symptoms of that, the number one sign and symptom you're going to see is restlessness. He is going to be very agitated, he's going to have difficulty breathing, and his heart rate's going to start racing. Um, what you will see, which is pretty dramatic, is what we call a mediastinal shift, and you'll actually see the mediastinum moving over and the trachea deviating over. That's a big sign of chest of um, tension pneumothorax, and we can actually give this to somebody accidentally from putting in a chest tube. Okay, so those are some of the things that you need to watch for. Any questions so far? Positioning for lobectomy and pneumonectomy. Okay, the positioning for pneumonectomy for a lobectomy. You're talking about post-operatively, right? So post-operatively, you're going to have chest tubes. With a lobectomy, you can position on the side that has not been operated on. So if you've got a right lobe taken out, you can turn him on to the left side. Okay? But don't turn him on to the right side. This is the lobectomy. With the pneumonectomy, that means taking a whole entire lung out. Okay, postoperatively, you want to lay him on the same side that you took the lung out. Okay, the same side, so the operative side. Now, I use words like operative and unoperative side on purpose. And why do I do that? Because those are the words you're going to see in NCLEX. Okay, if I don't use them, you don't know them, and I'm talking Greek to you. Okay, so you've got to know what these, these words mean. So there's a reason for my speaking the way I speak, in other words. <laughs> okay, let's talk about urinary tract infections. Some predisposing factors for UTIs. Number one is urinary stasis. So what does that tell you? That tells you if you've got to go, you've got to go. Okay, so how many of us work as nurses? We come in in the morning, we don't get breakfast, right? And then we go, 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 go. We feel around about, oh, eight, nine, about 9 o'clock that we got to go, but we don't have time to go because we've got all these meds that we have to pass, so we forget it. We don't go to the bathroom. We continue to pass the meds. Then all of a sudden, you don't have the urge to go anymore. And around about 12 o'clock, when you finally do get to go to the bathroom, Lake Erie is what you produce. Okay, one of the Great Lakes. So you just, you know, that's urinary stasis, folks. You cannot do that to yourself. If you got to go, you got to go. It takes, what, two minutes to go to the bathroom? It takes two minutes to go to the bathroom. So go to the bathroom. Indwelling catheters are another um, predisposing factor. D 
decreased body resistance. So all these old people who, who live in nursing homes, do you think they have decreased body resistance? Uh-huh. And how many of them have indwelling catheters? A lot. Okay, and how many of them are well hydrated? Oh, maybe two. So you're talking about a problem here. Increased estrogen levels also can predispose you. So if you're on HRTs or birth control pills, that will predispose you to urinary tract infections as well. So difficulty urinating or dysuria, okay, frequency, urgency, certainly, nocturia, because you're up all night peeing, yes. A fever, usually a lower grade fever with a UTI. With urinary tract infection, it's usually about 100, 100.4. Very seldom will it get much higher than that. You'll have suprapubic, which is right here, right above the pubic area. Suprapubic or low back pain. Okay, and you feel, oh my gosh, you feel like a little old lady. Well, some of the diagnostic tests, obviously, is we'd get a UA, we do a culture and sensitivity, and we know that the culture and sensitivity is basically to find out what bug or what organism is causing the UTI and what uh, antibiotic will work to fix it, right? Some of the other interventions that we can give them are what? Amoxicillin, Cipro, okay? We'll give fluoroquinolones, which is Levaquin, Tequin, We'll give Bactrim, um, we'll give Floxin, certainly. We also want to tell the patient that she's going to have to drink more than 3,000 cc's per day of water, preferably. Okay. Certainly cranberry juice is a good idea, but water is a wonderful thing. It flushes your whole system out. We want to tell them to avoid caffeine and alcohol because actually caffeine, and al caffeine is a diuretic and alcohol is actually a dehydrating agent. And it can cause diuresis as well. Do you know that for every beer that you drink, you need to replace it with two glasses of water? And that for every shot of hard liquor that you drink, you need to replace that with a full glass of water? Yep, because that's how much it takes out of your system. You want to avoid stagnation. In other words, tell them if they have the urge to go, they need to go. Don't hold it, okay? Acidify the urine, we talked about cranberry juice, and give vitamin C because vitamin C actually does help acidify the urine. One of the other drugs that we do give them is something called peridium, and we know that peridium does what? It turns your pee orange. So what I generally tell my patients is if you're wearing white underwear, try not to wear that while you're on peridium because you're going to have these little orange spots all over your underwear, and they're the devil to take care of. It's hard to take, yeah, <laughs> really. Okay, so she's come in, she had a UTI, and now we've fixed her. All right, let's talk about pyelo. Hopefully, we will not let the UTI progress to pyelonephritis. Multiple UTIs can actually cause, be a predisposing risk factor for bladder cancer as well. But UTIs that are not taken care of can march up the ureters and actually cause pyelonephritis. And pyelo is an inflammation of the renal pelvis, and it's actually an infection in the renal pelvis itself. What you've got are little pockets. Yeah, see, we, yeah. See, we didn't take care of her real well, so now she, here she is. You've got these little pus pockets that are sitting in the renal pelvis. So she's got what we call CVA tenderness, which is costovertebral angle tenderness, okay? These are your ribs or your costal area, and this is your spine or your vertebral area. So the tenderness lies between the costal vertebral angle right there. Okay, so essentially what we do is we tap them on the back right at that particular spot. Now, if they've got pyelo, which what we call the positive chandelier sign, yeah, because we tap it, they jump up and catch the set. 
that's how much pain it, yeah, you guys. Anyway, that's how much pain she's in. She jumps up to the ceiling and Hope catches on to the chandelier. She has back pain severely, fever, and the fever will go up to 102, 103, 104 even, very high. Chills, malaise, those sorts of things happen with pyelo. So what we've got to do is we've got to fix her. So we've got to monitor BUN creatinine. We've got to do eyes and nose. We will give aminoglycosides. Now it's at this point that gentamicin comes into play because now it's a big time thing. So it's IV antibiotics now, okay? We may give Bactrim as well, but generally we give, we give gentamicin. We give urinary antiseptics, you know, like peridium. We'll give antispermotics like probanthine or baclofen. Obviously, we'll treat the fever. And the nausea and vomiting that occurs, occurs primarily because of the pain. Okay, not because of GI upset, but because of the pain. The pain levels are so high. So we've got to fix her. Okay? Now, stones can occur to both men and women, renal calculi. And renal calculi are made up of different things. Okay? With, not, with renal calculi, you will find nausea and vomiting and severe pain. But again, the nausea and vomiting doesn't occur because of the GI upset. It occurs because of the pain. And the pain is in the flank area, and they always say, it travels, right? The pain starts here, and it moves all the way down to my groin. Well, a lot of that has to do with referred or radiating pain, or because the stone has actually traveled in and of itself. And the majority of the time, they think that the stone is like a boulder, when it's not, it's about the size of a poppy seed, okay? Hematuria is another symptomology. I mean, they've got blood in their urine, and that blood in their urine really comes from the stone just rubbing against um, the ureter or rubbing against the renal pelvis itself. So some of your diagnostic tests include a KUB, which is basically an X-ray. KUB stands for kidneys, ureter, bladder. Some places they call it the uh, abdominal series. Okay. An IVP or intravenous pilogram, they'll do a UA as well. What are your nursing interventions? Well, you're going to be pushing fluids. Essentially, if somebody comes into the ER with a, renal, with a kidney stone, we start an IV and we hang a liter, usually of saline, and we just run it wide open. We want to get him well hydrated because we want him to pee. Okay. Of course, that is not what he wants to hear because every time he pees, it hurts. But that's the only way we can get the stone out. Okay, we'll strain the urine, we'll give him, um, actually we'll give him Toradol, and Toradol works like a, a, a charm. It's an anti-inflammatory, okay, and it belongs to the NSAID category, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory category. It works very, very, very well, and it, do, it just takes the pain away very nicely. And we will also give him a little strainer, and we'll say to him, if you have to pee, please pee through this little strainer, okay? Because we want to see if he's got any kind of... Um, if he's passed the stone at all, okay? Now, we'll give pain relief, we'll give anti-emetics like Phenergan because he's nauseous. We'll tell him to modify his diet, okay? And what do we mean by modifying his diet? Well, if he's taking a lot of calcium, I mean, if he's drinking a lot of milk and, and eating a lot of cheese, he might need to change it, okay? And he also, we will give Xyloprim, and if you give Xyloprim, you've got to make sure that you give him, tell him he has to take a lot of water, a lot of fluid with it. That's an NCLEX question on Xyloprim, by the way, okay? Diet management depends on the kind of stones. We essentially tell him to avoid milk and milk products and tea, because tea has, is very, very high in oxalate. Most stones are calcium oxalate, so you avoid milk and milk products, you avoid tea, and yes, you avoid beer, 
So how many guys do you think comply? Thank you. Right. All right. Now, we've done the girl thing, and then we've done the girl and guy thing, and now let's do the guy thing alone. Okay, we're going to move on to the guy urine thing. With the guy urine, urinary tract thing, it's benign prostatic hypertrophy is what we want to cover more than anything else. The definition of benign BPH, or benign prostatic hypertrophy, is that the prostate enlarges and causes pressure on the urethral, the passageway, right? Because you know that the urethra comes underneath the perineal area and the prostate is right, it surrounds the urethra, urethra and if it enlarges then it causes pressure and it actually inhibits the passage of urine. Okay, so that's how BPH is formed. What happens with BPH is we generally, it's, it's fixable, it's easily fixable. Yes, they do a TURP with it, okay. He has frequency, he's got nocturia, he's got hesitancy and urinary retention as well. And now the diagnostic test that for the guy is not something that, you know, men really particularly like. Does he look like he's running away from something? Yeah, he is because the big thing is we do a digital rectal exam. So we tell him, take, drop your drawers and bend over. They don't really like that. And then the doctor puts a finger right up his rectum and he massages to see to he wants to feel the prostate. Okay? Now, a digital rectal exam has nothing to do with the passage of his stool. It has everything to do with the prostate and everything to do with the urinary tract system. There is an NCLEX question where, yeah, this guy is having a digital rectal exam, so which of the following should you ask him? And one of them was, you know, have you taken a laxative? And number two was, when was your last bowel movement? And then the third one was, uh, how is your urinary status? So that's your choice, because the DRE is done to assess the prostate and is done to assess your urinary status, the man's urinary status, not, okay, not his bowel movements. So DRE is number one. We also do a urinalysis, and we, you will find increased alkalinity um, because his PSA will be elevated, okay, and his BUN and creatinine will also be elevated, okay? So what do we do? Well, we do a cystoscopy, and guys don't like this one either. Because the cystoscopy essentially is that we take a little scope, we put it up his penis, and we go all the way up to his bladder and we take a look at the bladder. They really don't like this. It's very uncomfortable. Okay, so, but we got to do it because we have to see what's going on. So what are some of our interventions if somebody does have BPH? Well, we've got the conservative method. And the conservative method is that we give drugs. Okay? We love to give drugs. Hytrin we give. Now, if, you're going to, if your patient is getting hytrin, what you've got to tell him is that he must take the first dose of hytrin at night. Okay? Just the first dose that he ever takes of hytrin, he must take it at night. Because there is a possibility of hypotension with this. And you don't want him to take it in the morning for him to get transient hypotension, fall down and hit his head on you. Okay? First dose of hydrogen, take at night. After that, he can take it anytime he wants. Okay. Proscar and Prazosin are two other medications. And a TURP, a transurethral prostatectomy, is a surgical intervention that we utilize that, that's pretty common and it's really works, it really works very well and it's really not that scary of a deal. Okay? 
preoperatively, pre-op TURP, what we tell the guy is, you need to, uh, we'll give you stool softness, okay, you've got to be NPO six to eight hours before. We're going to give you ANSEF, which is an antibiotic also beforehand, and we're going to draw some blood work and get some urine samples and stuff like that, just the normal stuff. Postoperatively, this is where the nursing challenge comes in because, yes, you'll continue to give the stool softeners and strain the urine, and you're going to tell them no heavy lifting or straining, so no Valsalva, that's why the stool softeners, for at least six to eight weeks afterwards. But the most important thing is that he is going to come out of his surgery and he's going to have continuous bladder irrigation in place. He's going to have a catheter going up his penis into his bladder that really does look like a garden hose, folks. Yeah, but he won't know it because we put it in while you were under, so you didn't notice it at all, okay? So anyway, it's going to look, it's pretty big. It's, got, it's a three-way irrigation system. Two of the ways, there's three tubes. Two tubes get hooked up to big, huge bags of about two to 3,000 cc's apiece, and the third one drains the urine and the, whatever drainage we put into him out. Anyone who's got continuous bladder irrigation, and if that person is your patient, it's really important that you measure I's and O's very, very carefully, okay? And the word is continuous bladder irrigation. In other words, it has to flow continuously. You cannot clamp it. You cannot, you know, I, I cannot tell you how many nurses I know who would go in and just clamp the silly thing. Well, I had a student nurse who was taking care of a patient with continuous bladder irrigation. She was a jewel and a gem. She went in, took care of it. It was wonderful. It was fantastic. And it's all done. All right? She came out, took care of another patient, went back in. It was clamped. Okay? This happened a couple of three times. So we went to the nurse who was her pri the patient's primary nurse and said, you know, this, this thing keeps getting clamped. You got any idea? She said, yeah, I, I clamped it. We said, why? I didn't have the time to go in and check him. So what she figured was she would go in, when she did check him, she'd unclamp it, let it flow, and then after what, clamp it and leave. No, no. The word is continuous bladder irrigation. It's very important for you to continuously irrigate, and it's also very important for you to do I's and O's and strict I's and O's. Remember, your output must be more than your input with CBI. Right, because he's also producing urine. So that output must be more than input with continuous bladder irrigation. If the output is less or equal to, you have a problem. You have a big problem, because that means he's not producing urine. So that means we need to check into this a little bit more. Okay, couple of questions. Uh, number one, I was stopped by a young lady who works for hospice, apparently. And the, the question that she had was, you know, I have a hospice patient and um, she's now in the ICU, what do we do for her? Now you all know that with hospice, it's an end of life issue. And essentially what it means is that you make the person as comfortable as you can. You do not deny the person anything that could make him or her comfortable. So her question was, do we start an IV? Do we give fluids? Well, that really is dependent upon several things. Number one, I would say yes. First of all, I would say yes. Start an IV, give the fluids. You're not asking you to do anything heroic. It's not a ventilator, okay? It's not, certainly not a respirator. It's not an, a, a big deal. Starting an IV and giving fluids is comfort measure, okay? It's a comfort measure, unless the person has no veins. 
And you know what that means. If the person has no veins, you're not going to put in a central line. That would not be a basic comfort measure. And that's something that the doctor would not want to do. This is a hospice end-of-life issue. But if it's you know, possible to find a vein and start an IV and just give basic fluids, yeah, I'd say yes. The other thing I want to say is that uh, this sort of issue, end-of-life hospice patient, that really depends upon the family, the living will, the doctor. That's an that's a interdisciplinary decision to make. It's not something that the nurse makes. It's not a decision that the nurse makes, okay? One more time, I would say, yeah, IV, got nice veins, started, go ahead and give basic fluids. But no, no veins, you're not going to put a central line in, you're not going to put an external jugular vein, you know, line in, you're not going to do anything heroic. That's heroic. A basic IV is not heroic measure. All right? Pretty clear? Okay. I was also stopped in the bathroom and asked if I would please go over. <laughs> hey, you know, catch me wherever you can. <laughs> I was asked if I could go over, please, the EKG and tell the difference and, and maybe help you all understand a little bit more and understand the difference between AFib and VFib. It's really very easy. But before you get to AFib and VFib, you must know the basic EKG, the basic QRS complex, how the heart functions. Okay, if you look at what I just drew up here, this is your basic EKG strip, all right? The first bump where my finger is, can you see that? That first bump, what's that? That's your P wave, correct? That's your P wave, all right? Do you see that? Okay. That P wave represents atrial, the what? The SA node firing. It, it represents atrial, what? Depolarization, exactly. Okay, so let's use the words, the correct words. That P wave represents atrial depolarization. Now, what happens is the SA node fires, then, then the atria contract, and then your little electrical activity moves down the heart to the AV node through the bundle of his, to the Purkinje fibers, and this thing here, which is the QRS, that's your QRS complex. That represents ventricular depolarization. All right? Ventricular depolarization. This thing here, which is your T wave, represents ventricular repolarization. In other words, the depolarization is when the ventricles contract. That's activity. To repolarize means to get your energy back again. All right? P wave, atrial, QRS, ventricle, T wave, that's where the ventricles regain their activity. Okay? Where does the, where does the atria regain their activity? right here in the QRS complex, but it's buried in the QRS complex. The QRS complex is so strong that it hides the little activity that shows where the atria are, are repolarizing, okay? So you know that the P wave is atria, QRS is ventricle, yes? Good. Now, let's move on and we'll talk about atrial fib versus ventricular fibrillation. If it's atrial fibrillation, it, what does that mean? 
It means that the atria are fibrillating. And fibrillation means to contract and, you know, to, to it's like a can of worms, okay? It's like it's contracting and relaxing very quickly to fibrillate. That's what it means. So if you're looking at a QRS complex, what you will tend to see is you'll see a lot of P waves. You'll still see ventricular, the QRS waves, because the ventricles are still contracting. They don't contract for every single P wave, but they contract for every 10th, every 20th, every whatever. Do you see? That's atrial fibrillation. With ventricular fibrillation, you will not see a nice QRS complex. With V-fib, what you're going to see is that. That's V-fib. Just essentially almost a, a, just a one squiggly line. That's ventricular fibrillation. All right? Now, I was asked another question also, and that's to tell the difference between atrial flutter. Okay, so what's atrial flutter versus atrial fib? Well, atrial flutter has that sawtooth look, okay? Here, you, again, it's a sawtoothy kind of a look. You've still got nice QRS complexes, but your P waves are bigger than with AFib. With AFib, there are some times where you, you may not see the little squiggly line before you see the QRS complex, okay? But if you see a QRS complex, you know it can't be VFib. You know it's got to be atrial. All right? Prostate cancer is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in males over 55 years of age. So, is that a wake-up call for you all? Hope so. Signs and symptoms and assessments pretty close to that for BPH. Okay, and remember what BPH stood for? Benign prostatic hypertrophy. So, what do we do and how do we find out if this person has either has prostate cancer versus BPH? Because if we're saying that the signs and symptoms are the same, then we need to have some form of tool where we can differentiate, differentiate between prostatic cancer and benign prostatic hypertrophy. Well, it's a very good test that's out there. It's called the PSA, which is the prostatic surface antigen. And what you'll find when you draw, it's a blood test, when you draw that blood test, you draw the blood, you'll find an increase in the alkaline phosphatase. Now, there's a question that NCLEX loves to throw out, and that question is, your patient is going for... Um, a DRE, which is the digital rectal exam, okay, and uh, also it's going for a PSA level. So which one should you do first? Well, the answer is you draw the blood level first and then you do the digital rectal exam. And the reason is because the theory is that if you do the digital rectal exam first, you can hyperstimulate the prostate to produce more prostatic surface antigen and you may get a false reading. So that's the NCLEX question. You do the PSA first and then you do your DRE. Okay? So now we got treatment. You have prostatic cancer, and the treatment for it, and really pretty much the only treatment, though, is surgery. So they'll do a, a perineal prostatectomy, and essentially what that is is the incise at the perineum. They go in and they remove the entire prostate. 
The complication and the problem with this one is that you may have, it's a possibility um, that the man may become impotent. And I tell this story a lot. I had a friend um, whom I treated for oh, over 12 years down in Florida. I met him and his wife when, uh, no, I met him and not his wife because his wife was already dead. But I met him when I first moved down to Florida and he was 78 at the time. At the ripe old age of 88, he was diagnosed with prostatic cancer. And so we told him, you know, you have several choices. And the, but the best choice, we caught it early enough, the best choice is just go ahead and remove the prostate. And he said, no, he didn't want to do it. And we said, why? He says, because I won't be able to have sex. He's 88 years old. <laughs> so now I knew his wife was dead. Okay, so uh, I said, um, okay, well, when was the last time you had sex? And he says, 25 years ago, when his wife died. So I said, no, okay, wait a minute. Now, I just really don't understand this. <laughs> You don't want to have this thing because you possibly may not be able to have sex, but you haven't had sex in 25 years. But if you have the surgery, it might save your life, and if you don't have the surgery, you'll die. I said, you do like playing tennis, don't you? 88 years old, play tennis every single day. Amazing guy. Well, bottom line is he ended up having the surgery. Um, I never asked him if he became impotent or not. There's not some, it's like too much information here, okay? <laughs> I figured if he had a problem, he'd let me know. Um, and he had the surgery, and um, he's now 94. Yeah, and he's doing very, very well. Still playing tennis. He says a little bit slower. He says he can't return the aces anymore, but he can still <laughs> he can still play tennis. So there is life after prostate cancer. I mean, that's something that you need to to remember this completely. Okay. Bladder cancer is the most common site of cancer of the urinary tract. Now, some of the risk factors of bladder cancer include frequent UTIs. Okay, so if you, that's why I said yesterday, I emphasized so strongly that if you do have to go, you have to go. Now, I know I give you all breaks, you know, every, every so often you take these 15-minute breaks, but there are a lot of you in this room, and I know that the water level in New York City just drops drastically when you all go to the bathroom all at one time. Right, we have no pressure in the, in the hotel at all. But um, if you've got to go in the middle of my lecture, go. Please, please go. <laughs> okay? I'm not stopping, and I won't think it's rude. I'd rather you do that. Um, so if you've got to go, you've got to go. Do not hold it, please, because you may give yourself a UTI, and then if you give yourself a UTI, you might get bladder cancer down the road. Okay. Some of the most predisposing factors of bladder cancer, as I said, chronic bladder infection and smoking. So if you're smoking, I hope there's no one in this room that's smoking. I really hope so. I mean, I, I had a group of students one time, and they asked me about smoke breaks. And I said, okay, let me put it to you this way. Now, our clinical rotation was on the fifth floor of this hospital. And I said, okay, let me put it this way. You can have a smoke break on these conditions. We are on the fifth floor. You cannot leave the fifth floor. But you can hang out the window of the fifth floor, okay, and blow downwind, and then you can smoke. But you've got to hang by your toes. Nobody got a smoke break. All right. The number one sign of bladder cancer is painless hematuria. If someone comes in and says, I'm peeing blood and it hurts, you think more of what? Stones. Okay, kidney stones. 
But if the person comes in and says, I am peeing blood and it just doesn't hurt at all, okay, that's a warning sign. And that, that's a red flag that it possibly could be a bladder cancer. This is an NCLEX question. They'll say which of the following is a sign or a symptom of um, bladder cancer. And they give you all these things, you know, pain, flank pain, everything. Look for painless hematuria. Painless hematuria is the number one sign of bladder cancer. Difficulty urinating. Okay. A lot of times they won't come in for dysuria. They won't. There are two things that bring people into the ER, or bring people into the doctor. Number one is pain, and the number two is blood. Okay, they see blood, they bring them in. That's it. <laughs> Don't care where the blood's coming from, bringing them in. Okay, they're coming in. Frequency also is another sign. Again, you know, just the feeling they got to go all the time. But frequency, again, doesn't really bring them in to see the doctor. It's that pain or painless hematuria. Okay? Now remember with bladder cancer, there's no pain. So it's painless hematuria that's going to bring them in. So what are the diagnostic tests that we perform uh, to rule out or rule in bladder cancer? Well, the first test that, we, uh, that doctors, u urologists will perform is something called a cystoscopy. Not a comfortable thing for guys. Because essentially what it is is that they have to put a scope up the penis into the bladder to take a look at the bladder. Really not comfortable. We tend to medicate men when they come in. Yeah, big time. We medicate them first, you know, before we do this um, because it's uncomfortable. And they also tend to really tense up. And when you tense up, it's, it's not very easy to uh, take past that blood, um, that cystoscope up. What's the treatment? Well, the treatment for bladder cancer is surgery. They actually remove the whole bladder, and that's called a cystectomy. Okay? You see the word cyst, and you think it's a cyst. No. Cystectomy is removal of the bladder. And what they do is they take the whole bladder out. They generally don't touch the ureters because, remember, you still got to be able to eliminate. The kidneys are fine. You just want to eliminate the the um, You've got to eliminate the urine from the body, the waste products from the body. So what they do is they take the ureters and they anastomose it. Do you all know what anastomose means? Okay, they join them, they anastomose them, and they bring, the, bring both ureters out. There's a diversion, and they bring it out onto the abdominal wall. It's a very, very small stoma. It's really small. Please move to the next section of the lecture series. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating. We wish you all the best in the coming examination. See you next time.